When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Ashraddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no, no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They hired counsellors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. At the beginning of the reign of, of Xerxes, they lodged an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And the days of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabal, and the rest of his associates wrote a letter to Artaxerxes. The letter was written in Aramaic script and in the Aramaic language. Raham, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Raham, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, together with the rest of their associates, the judges and the officials over the men from Tripolis, Persia, Erech, and Babylon, Babylon, the Elamites of Susa, and the other people whom the great honourable Ashurbanipal deported and settled in the city of Samurai, Samaria, and elsewhere in Trans-Euphrates. This is a copy of the letter they sent him to King Artaxerxes, from your servants, the men of Trans-Euphrates. The king should know that the Jews who came up to us from, from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know that this city is built, is built and its walls are restored. No more taxes, tribute or duty will be paid and the royal revenues will suffer. Now, since we are under obligation to the palace, and it is not proper for us to see the king dishonoured, we are sending this message to inform the king, so that a search may be made in the archives of your predecessors. In these records you will find that this city is a rebellious city, troublesome to the kings and provinces, a place of rebellion from the ancient times. That is why the city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in trans-Euphrates. The king sent this reply to Raham, the commanding officer, Shimshai, the secretary, and the rest of their associates living in Samaria and elsewhere in trans-Euphrates. Greetings. The letter you sent us has been read and translated in my presence. I issued an order and a search was made, and it was found that this city has a long history of revolt against kings and has a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of Trans-Euphrates, and taxes, tribute, and duty were made to them. Now issue an order to these men to stop work, so this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to, to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interests? As soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Raham and Shimshai, the secretary, and their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. Thus the work of the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia.
Excellent. So um, we've been going through the book of Ezra. We're up to chapter 4. Uh, Ian started off. Let's see if that's what comes up first. Excellent. Uh, the first topic we looked at was rebuilding on the ruins. And they were the challenges that were left for God's people. They were to own the ruin. God was the first cause of all things. And they were called to be obedient. They had to get up and move from where they were and go with God and do what he'd asked them to do. Uh, second, I had the list of names. All the people like Barzillai and all the funny names that were all the way through. Um, so I had a great time for a week looking at that chapter. And we looked at God's sovereign faithfulness, God's restoration of his people and God's provision for his people. But all of that was in the context of them having to get up, go out and actually do something, not sit back and enjoy those promises. And last week, Ian took us through the topic of God's people being restored to worship. Um, So they have the priority of worship, the centrality of worship and the unity through worship. Um, So there are some of the things we looked at last week. Ezra is a really, really great book. I think the two most difficult chapters to look at, though, are chapter 2 and chapter 4, which um, have been excellent, because I've had both of them, um, and I am promised that there's been no forward planning in that. Because t- the chapter 4 is an absolute nightmare for some people, and it has been a bit for me this week, but I'll show you why as we go through. Let's see what comes up next. Right then, this is where I've got notes from. This picture is mainly because Jai's been fiddling with my notes as a TARDIS on the screen. Um, during Ezra chapter 4, and I've called this, this topic when a wheel comes off, because, you know, when a wheel comes off, when everything starts to go wrong, what do you do? Um, during chapter 4, there's a bit of a time shift. So if you've got your Bibles open, if you have a look, uh, Ezra chapter 4, verse 6, to Ezra chapter 4, verse 23, that isn't necessarily when you might think it is. I've got a diagram to help us see where that is. But I thought I'd ask this question very briefly. If you could travel in time, where would you go to? What would you go to see and why? Any ideas? If you could travel in time to anywhere to do anything, what would you want to do? Or does nobody ever want to travel through time and see what's going on? Any ideas? What would you fancy, Jai? Jai? 1966 World Cup final. Yeah, anybody else fancy going to the 1966 World Cup final? A few nods, some shakes. I had no idea that there were some football finals this week, last week, or really who was playing. So um, that probably wouldn't interest me all that much. I hadn't thought where I'd like to go. But I think this idea of time travel almost comes up a bit in this book. Because, um, well, we'll get there. Ezra... Now, this is a bit difficult to understand, I think. So Ezra, the book, is being written in the future, and it's being read in the future. And by that I mean, the people that Ezra is, um, that are going to get it and read it, aren't reading it at the time that it's happening. Does that make sense? So like when you pick up a newspaper, you're reading yesterday's news. So Ezra is talking about things that happened in the past. So it's being written after those things, and it's being read after those things. So effectively... Ezra's been written in the future. And it's also, Ezra's not like a a blogger who can go online and just put his thoughts up immediately and people can see them straight away. It's all stuff that's happened in the past and it's being written down after the fact. So that's why it's a bit funny. Right. This is my little diagram to give you a clue of what's going on in the book of Ezra. 
Fortunately, we've got a laser pointer, so I can point to things on the uh, screen. This is Cyrus. This is the beginning of Ezra. And Nehemiah comes up towards the end of Ezra. Now, if we were writing the book, we would go Ezra chapter 1, dun, 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 to Ezra chapter 10, back here. Unfortunately for us, Ezra is not written in that manner. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, to Ezra 4.23, is all of that history, that like period of history, which is excellent. Then Ezra chapter 4 to the end of chapter 6 is a tiny little spot there under the reign of Darius. And then Ezra 7 to Ezra 10 is a tiny little spot there in the reign of Artaxerxes, which is excellent when you come to read the commentaries. Because if you pick up a commentary on Ezra, they just have a field day. They love this sort of stuff because it means there's controversy to be had. Why has he done this? Why is it written in this order? What's going on? So you read through them all. And, um, and they all have slightly different ideas. So it is a bit of a, uh, a commentator's dream. There's an awful lot of theories. But actually, the majority have begun to sort of settle down on the idea. They're quite happy with the way that the book looks. It actually is the way that it was written. Things were written in this style back then. So they'd give you a very brief overview and then cut in at different points after they'd written about it. Which is, I mean, if you were there at the time, you'd have understood it. Um, for us now, we have to get diagrams and work out what's going on because we're not entirely certain. But like I say, it's how they used to write, so it sort of shows some authenticity in, uh, in the book. But more awkwardly than that, the little star there, just before the reign of Darius, that is where Ezra chapter 4, verse 6 is. So Ezra chapter 4, verse 6 to Ezra chapter 4, verse 23 goes pretty much from there to the end. So that's a real big span of time in very few verses. And this is what I've got this, mo- this afternoon to talk about. So nearly said the M-word. So there we go. So I thought I'd um, give you where we're heading towards uh, this afternoon to start with. So the topic is when a wheel comes off. And I've got three main points. And they're God's unflappable faithfulness. God's people get oppressed. And God's people are pure. So these are some of the big themes of Ezra chapter 4. It's all sort of big picture stuff. But we can sort of compare these a little bit to what's going on on the ground with God's people as they're going through the difficulties that they face. And when a wheel comes off, that's more about God's people and not about God. God's wheels are firmly screwed on and they never come off. So that's excellent for him. Right. So, and I thought what we'd do is we work through them in reverse order. So, I mean, starting with number three, then number two, then number one. Not one, two, three, as you might expect. Um, because Ezra is in a funny order, we'll do these points in a funny order. I also found out today that on, um, on my computer, when I make a slide like this, there's a space underneath for me to type loads of notes, and it doesn't shrink the picture of the slide to make all the notes fit on. It just shrinks the notes smaller and smaller the more notes you add. So... Um, you know, it's quite small on this one. So I do apologise if I have to like, stare down at what they say. So what have we got? So starting with number three. God's people are pure. When we read this chapter, we find out, we know who God's people are, don't we? From looking through Ezra, we know that God's people are the ones who are now been brought back from exile. They've come from exile and they're coming back to Jerusalem. They're coming back to rebuild the temple under the charge of Ezra. They're coming back so they can worship God in their land by rebuilding the temple, sacrificing to do that. 
And we looked in Ezra chapter 2, that the people coming back, they've got the vision for seeing God's work fulfilled, but they've also got the patience to see that like through. They're not going to get back and find a temple, they're getting back to find a ruin. So they've got vision, they know they're going to rebuild a temple, but it's going to take a lot of time, so they've got the patience to see it through. Next is, these are people who we learnt last week have started sacrificing and they've started atoning for sins and having their sins dealt with. What I found amazing when we looked through chapter 2 was that these aren't just ethnic Jews born in Jerusalem, just born to Jewish parents. Some of these are foreigners that have got interested in Judaism. They've become converts to it and they're welcomed in and they're part of God's people. I find that amazing because a lot of the time in the Old Testament... They always seem to be quite isolationist. They sort of want to keep themselves to themselves. They don't really want to have a great deal to do with the outsiders. But at this point, God's people are not just ethnic Jews. There are people in there who have been added in, who have been welcomed into the outsiders. Um, So the outsiders will be able to come to the temple when it's built. They'll be able to worship. But they wouldn't do that at the expense of compromising on their own purity. And I thought, ultimately, who are God's people? God's people are people who have the chief aim, their chief mission and their chief joy in life is to glorify God, whatever it is they're doing and wherever they are. And I think that's quite a good, you know, that's who God's people were then and that's who God's people are now. People with a chief aim, mission and joy to glorify God, whatever they're doing and wherever they are. Okay, so then, who is it um, that's offering to help God's people rebuild the temple? So in Ezra chapter 4 it says, When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build, because like you, um, sorry, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. So who is it that's offering to help God's people? Well, firstly... As we read in uh, verse 1, these are the enemies of Judah and Benjamin. These are the enemies of God's people. It seems to me a bit of a a Trojan horse tactic. They're thinking, we're the enemies of God's people. However, if we can look, you know, acceptable so they'll pull us in, we can cause a bit of problem from the inside, and that's more difficult. (coughs) I thought that an enemy on the outside, you can deal with. Because, you know, if somebody's on the outside and they're an enemy, they're easier to, like, fight off because everyone on the inside can fight against it. But if they've got enemies on the inside, it's a lot easier to make lots of problems there. And these are people as well who have been there for a while, and they say, we seek after your God, which in a way they do, but they don't just seek after the God of the Bible. They're seeking after worshipping anything that's going. They're people who will worship any God that's up for grabs. And they'll worship any God and... Um, you know, they don't really mind what he asks, how it, like what it takes to do it. They'll do whatever their God wants them to do to worship. But then, is not is help not always good? It, I think it seems, as you read this a few verses, it seems quite rude. God's people sound quite rude. They say, "We'd like to come and help," and they just go, "Thank you very much, but uh, no, we don't want anything to do with you." And top it all off, Cyrus the king has said, "We're to build this temple ourselves." So I think it sounds a bit rude. But I think for God's people here, it's really important for them to remain pure. We looked at this the other week, that they're they're trying to remain pure so that they can worship God in a true and real way. 
And if they compromise at the beginning, before the temple's even built, the likelihood is the temple won't end up being built. So they've got to stay pure to start with. Also, they've got no security. They haven't got a temple yet. I think it's very easy to read this and, and to almost forget that their big plan is to actually get on and get building this temple that they're after. So they've got no, nothing to say. Actually, it's already done. You know, if you want to come on a, on a Saturday and see what goes on, that's fine. But, um, but up until that point, you know, they've got no way of, of keeping them at arm's length almost. They do have a political reason to say no. The king says, you're to go home and rebuild. They're already there. They can legitimately say no. The king said that we're to go and build. So, um, so you know, we, we can't accept help. The, the king will be really cross. And at this point, when I read through, actually, the people that they go to to offer help, they go to the leaders. They go to Zerubbabel and the heads of the houses in Jeshua. And they offer to help them. And at this point, the leaders have to make a decision. Shall we accept their help? Shall we not? And the leaders make the decision to, let, to not let them help. And they make that decision for the good of the people, for their protection and for their benefit. And that contrasts with something a little bit later on in the chapter where the leaders aren't asked about something and bad things happen. Okay, so there, God's people are pure. They're trying to keep the building of the temple done by the right people in the right heart, in the, in the right frame of mind. So that's the first thing, that God's people are pure. Secondly, this is working backwards, don't forget, three, two, one will be after this. So God's people get oppressed. There's what do they do? And that they is the enemies. What do the enemies do? The first thing we see when they get refused to help is their hearts are exposed. If, it had been, if they'd been genuinely wanting to help, they'd have gone, oh, well, you know, fair enough. If you want to carry on building, that's fine. We wish you well, and we'll sit over here and, and enjoy a, you know, a can of Coke from the you know, 500 BC or whenever it was that didn't exist. But, um, but they don't. They get really cross. They get annoyed. Um, because their plan... Is they want to discourage God's people and they want to scare them off and make them afraid for building the temple. Their plan is to stop this temple going ahead. What they're ultimately wanting to do is to stop God's plans. They want to discourage and scare them off, but God is wanting to encourage his people and he's wanting to affirm them as his own. He's wanting to say, look, all these bad things have happened over these years, but I want to make you able to make you joyful and to make you able to build the temple so you can go in, you can sacrifice uh, you can get the priests going, you can get the Levites working. Everyone in the community can be working together so that you can have your sins forgiven, so that you can worship me properly, and you can enjoy a good faithful life. And that's what they're trying to stop. So what do they do to stop that? They go in and they bribe sort of local councillors. They get into local government, they give them a few quid, or whatever their money was, and say, actually, you know what, if you just... Take this, take this cash and you, you put an end to the work. That's what happens. It says they go in and they bribe them and the building stops. The work of the temple stops. So why is it particularly hurtful for these people to do that? Ultimately, these are God's people who are being bribed. It's not like they're foreigners who have been imposed to, to rule the area. These are God's people who are meant to be looking out for God's interests. They're given, given money from outsiders, people who don't worship God. And they put an end to the building of the temple. They put it on hold. Clearly their relationships weren't right with each other. If they'd been, if they'd been sorted out in a, in a faithful community, somebody would say, I'll give you, you know, £300 to stop, stop building on the temple. And they'd say, no thank you very much. Then they'd run to the, like the, the community and say, this has just happened. 
I want you to pray for me. I want you to pray for the other people who this might happen to. They might get them together and say, look, they're trying to stop us, but they don't. They line their pockets and they stop the work. None of them ask their leaders to help stop this. So in the first, in the first bit, the enemies come and they ask the leaders to help. The leaders say, no, clear off. And then they go into people and they bribe them and, and they don't like, flock to each other for the support. Okay, so then the work stops. Ultimately, this money's given in. The work stops. The local councils kind of put a stop to the work. And it stops for about 20 years, which is quite a long time. I'm only 25, so if, it, you know, if they'd stopped the work when I was born, it had been building for five years of my life. And that would feel like you know, a big gap. Um, some of you might be a little bit older, so you might not feel 20 years is all that long at all. But you may do. Okay, and I think... At the start, when the work stopped, they were probably quite upset. They'd been really excited. Last week, Ian was talking that they'd rebuilt an altar. They were starting sacrificing again. Uh, During this chapter, we see that they'd... uh, Sorry, the end of the last chapter, we see they'd sorted out the foundations for the temple. And at the end of chapter 3, there's great shouting, there's great joy at the the foundations for the temple being laid. So as soon as the work stops, I imagine that people are really upset and really distraught that the temple... Is not going to be built. But then in the book of Haggai, we see that throughout this time, Haggai sort of prophesies during the same kind of period that ultimately these people who were once really upset by the stopping of the temple get lazy and idle and they just sort of sit back and they get used to the fact that they're not building. They're not pressing on, trying to see if they can get this sorted out and worship God properly. They just get used to the fact that they're, they're not building. Okay. So many on to point one we do, excellent she has God's unflappable faithfulness when I read this chapter the best word in it is the word until if you've got your bible open it's um, Ezra 4:24, and it says thus the work of the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius king of Persia God's plan was for the temple to be rebuilt and at that point, God starts his work up again. God's plan is for it to be rebuilt. There's been a 20-year break, but God's plan isn't going to be stopped. So in that verse we see, work, uh, the work came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. I think it's great that God's work carries on. Not necessarily when they wanted to, not when they wanted it to, to carry on, but it did carry on. I think this sort of gives us an idea that God is unflappable, Whatever goes on in his people, the people around his people, whatever's going on in the world, he doesn't just like, go, oh, I don't know what to do. What's going on? He knows what's going on, and he's patient, and he's good, and he's calm. He's happy to wait. He's happy to have his plan come to fruition in his time. To the reader, who's reading this in the future, reading about the past, he's thinking, actually... God's plan did happen. God did win in the end. They're probably sitting there looking at some bit of the temple being rebuilt, or the temple itself, and they read it. thinking, actually, they tried to stop it. But look what we've got. God did win in the end. I thought for them, some of them may have been people going through the rough part of God's plan, the bit where they were stopped, um, but the temple was still going to be rebuilt. God's plan wasn't going to be stopped, but the challenge for them was to remain faithful through the hard times. There may have been some people who've been praying and fasting and seeking God through those 20 years, saying, God, please rebuild your temple. Please let us be able to rebuild your temple. 
but it doesn't seem like many of them were, were doing that, according to Haggai. Okay, so this next bit. What's the time shift in Ezra all about? So from verse 6 to verse 23, we get, this, um, we get a list of the monarchs that reign through Syria. We've got all their funny names. Emma did a great job reading through them. And, um, and we get a letter sent and a letter reply to one of the kings. And I think I've come with a, an excellent phrase. So if you've got notebooks, write it down. And I think Ezra is doing something that I've entitled a hermeneutical hop. Because um, well, that's a fancy word. I'll just drop that in. Um, I had to be taught very clearly what the word hermeneutics meant. Um, and I probably slightly askew with my definition. But I'll, I'll give you my definition. So what Ezra is doing as they read through this book, is they're understanding the Bible in its context and they're understanding how the context it was written in applies to them today as well. Hopefully that makes sense. So they're understanding what the Bible meant to them in the past, the situation that they were in, and they're understanding what that means for them in the immediate. Essentially, that chunk of this chapter, I thought, sort of summed it up a bit like this. Ezra's writing to the present... And he's saying, actually, as you go back and you look, this happened to your great-granddad. This happened to your granddad. This happened to your dad. Now this is happening to you. And look all the way through that. God has kept his promise. God is working from beginning to end, making sure that his plans come true. Hope that makes sense. And I think, as God's people hear that, they think, actually, yeah, that did happen to my great-granddad. And my granddad, and my dad. And this is happening to me. Wow, actually, now I get it. I understand that I don't have to just sit here and sulk about difficulties that go on because God is keeping his promises all the way through. So lastly then, God's faithfulness is independent. And I mean that in the sense that God's faithfulness to me isn't dependent on me. God's faithfulness to God's people in the book of Ezra wasn't dependent on them keeping the law, keeping all the things right, you know, doing all the washing, the priests going around to somebody's house saying, oh, we've got some mildew there, let's clean that out, because you'll find that in Leviticus, they can, you know, if you'd like um, priests to come around and clean your house of mildew, that was part of their job. What a great job. Sounds a bit dull. But, um, but that would have been their job. But that's not what was going on. God's people were sitting back, not building the temple, not trying to get past the difficulties they were faced. But God kept his promises to them. God's promises to them weren't based on their behaviour. God's made his promise and he never says, if you do this, I'll then go and and help you through all these difficult times. But if you do that wrong, then I'm going to stand back and I'm just going to let you suffer and suffer and suffer. And until you do X, Y and Z, trying to make it right between us, you know, you're on your own, pal. It's not God said, this is my promises. You may think it's gone off the rails, but ultimately my promises are going to come true thought God's plans are too big for us to deal with ourselves. They're too important for us to deal with ourselves. And for us, actually, they're impossible for us to make us do them. But by grace, God actually allows his people to take little parts and little steps in his plans and helps him um, to complete them. There's a verse in the New Testament in 2 Timothy, and it says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Okay. So let's see what we're up to. So we're our three titles today. God's people are pure, God's people get oppressed, and God's unflappable faithfulness. Right then. But I thought for us to understand what this really means for us, we have to look at this story through the lens in the middle of the Bible of Jesus. 
So as we look to the New Testament, as we look to the Old Testament, if we see it fulfilled in Jesus, we can understand a bit of it for ourselves. So let's start at the bottom again. Jesus is pure. When I think about the stories of Jesus in the New Testament, you get Jesus sat talking to a Samaritan woman at a well. That wasn't something that, that a Jewish rabbi should do. A Jewish rabbi goes and he holds the hand of a leper, he touches a leper. That would make him unclean. There's a point where a woman who'd been bleeding for years and years and years touches him. That would make Jesus unclean. But that's not how it happened. Jesus touches these people and they're healed. Jesus can't be infected by sin and impurity. But Jesus' purity is what is infectious. The woman who'd been bleeding for years and years and years spent all the money trying to get the doctors to heal her and make her well. She squeezes through the crowd and by faith touches the edge of Jesus' coat. And she's made well. Jesus' purity is infectious and it heals her. Jesus was sinless and his purity is infectious. Next. Jesus gets oppressed. Jesus was born at the time when Herod was in charge um, and at the time they were killing all the baby boys. You can't imagine what it must have been like for Joseph and Mary when they're trying to keep this little baby quiet so they can hurry off out of the country so that they don't get him uh, and kill him. They're exiled into Egypt and then a bit later on when we read through the stories of Jesus we see that his family are embarrassed at him. His brothers basically say, Jesus, just, just stop it. Stop teaching. Stop doing the miracles. You're embarrassing us. You're bringing shame on the family. I mean, if my brother, a bit older than me, has went around doing miracles, just stop it. You may be the better brother because you can do all the miracles, but stop it or there'll be trouble. You can imagine what it'd be like if your bigger brother was always showing you up and, and your parents were thinking, oh, we can't do it and we can't even stop him doing it. You can imagine it must have been really um, annoying for them. So they were, you can imagine, a bit embarrassed by him trying to stop him. And then, later in his life, Jesus was taken into the desert and he was there, he was tempted by Satan for 30 days. And then throughout the rest of his life we see that they tried to stone him, they tried to trip him up, not with their feet, but with their questions, trying to make people hate him. And they tried to stone him at several points and he always managed to get away. And the Bible says because it wasn't his time. But I thought, actually, how does Jesus respond to his oppression? During his oppression, he never let his feelings take him off course. And he never threw in the towel or spat his dummy out the pram. So any time that people were having a go at him, were being cruel to him, trying to stop him doing what he was doing. He never turned around in a strop and said, do you know who I am? I'm the king of glory who came from heaven. I know what I'm doing. I, have, oh, I, I know what's going on. I know what the end of the story is. I know where it all started. I know how it all goes. Who are you to say this to me? And you know what? Zap. Gone. You know, he could have done anything like that. He could have just got furious and sent off. But at no point does Jesus respond like that to his oppression. And why is that? I think that brings us to Jesus' unflappable faithfulness. Jesus is the only man in the Bible who had an excuse to be cross at the injustice that he was facing. Because ultimately, if Jesus had said, it wasn't my fault, that would have been true. It's amazing, isn't it, how like kids can knock something off a table or break something or falls over and then it is their fault. And the immediate thing they say is, it wasn't me. And they probably dropped something else in the process to prove that it wasn't them. And you've just seen them do it. But Jesus is the only person in the Bible who can say, it wasn't my fault. Jesus is the man whose friend, a bit like the counsellors in Ezra, took money over his glory. Judas betrayed Jesus for a bag of silver. And even in that, God worked out his plan and his purposes. Jesus is the only man 
who had done no wrongs, who is truth, who is love, who is just, and who is pure. And it's that man that died alone, naked and ashamed. All his friends deserted him at the last. But why? Why did Jesus go and die? Ultimately, Jesus died for our sins in our place because we couldn't do it. He knew that because of his love for us, if we went and died, nothing to take our sins away from us, we'd spend an eternity without God in eternal torment. But Jesus is the man who went to the cross, who took on death and won. Jesus, it seems, took on death, sin, Satan and all that on their terms. He says, go on, everything you've got, throw it at me. Let's see how it goes. So they beat him, they spit at him, they call him all sorts of names. He's the only man who could have said, turned around and said, actually, that's not true and here's what you are and this is what you've done and this is what you're like. But at no point does he do that. He lays down, he takes the beat and he takes the punishment. They nail him to the cross and at no point does he call down legions of angels and say, actually, stuff you lot that have done all this sin that I'm taking for you. You're on your own. None of that. He's unflappable. He goes through it all and he takes on death. He's put in the grave. Three days later, he rises again. God brings him back to life because his sacrifice was sufficient. After he comes back to life, he spends a bit of time teaching and then he ascends into heaven. So Jesus not only dies and is raised because his sacrifice was sufficient, but God takes him back to himself. And before Jesus goes, he says, I go up there to prepare a place for you. He says, as I go, just you wait. As Jesus ascends into heaven, the Bible has this picture. He raises his hands and he blesses his people and ultimately saying, look, you've got some work to do, but the reward is that you'll be with me forever. Jesus took on death and he won. So I thought, just to finish off, I'll spell it out for you. A few I wills. So I'll go backwards again. So I will live in Jesus' purity. Now that's probably quite an interesting thing. What does that mean? I think it means to start with, I will know that my sins are forgiven. That's where we have to live. We have to live knowing that our sins are forgiven. And we know our sins are forgiven because Jesus died, God raised him back to life and he's ascended into heaven. We live in the light of that. But there are two extremes that we can fall into. We can live trying to work our own purity. We can live basing our life and our, our relationship with, with God on what I don't do. So I, people might say, oh, I don't go to the cinema, oh, I don't go to the pub, oh, I don't swear, oh, I don't do this, I don't do that, I don't do the other. But we can't base our lives and our purity with God on what we don't do. Because ultimately, people say, well, we shouldn't, you shouldn't go to the pub because people in the world go to the pub. Worldly, sinful people go to the pub, or you shouldn't go and watch films at the cinema because worldly, worldly people go to the cinema. But ultimately, there's no end to that argument because you get to start saying, like, you know, you shouldn't eat carrots. Worldly people eat carrots. Ooh, shouldn't drive a car. Worldly people drive a car. Shouldn't breathe oxygen. Worldly people love oxygen. It doesn't stop. We can't base our purity on what we don't do. But the other end of that, the other extreme is, I'm pure. Jesus makes me pure. His death and resurrection and ascension makes me pure. Therefore, I can do whatever I like because God's made me pure. I've got like a Teflon coating. I can sin to my heart's content and it doesn't matter because Jesus made me pure. 
obviously both those extremes are wrong. In uh, Corinthians, Paul, like, Paul says to the Corinthian church, shall I go on sinning that grace may abound? This idea that if God gets glory by forgiving people their sins, I might as well sin loads so that God gets loads of glory. And Paul's response to that is, well, that's a good idea. Let's carry on. It's not at all. He says, shall I sin more that grace may abound? Certainly not. So our plan to live in the light of Jesus' purity is to live thanking God for the purity that he gives us. In response to that, we want to live lives that are faithful to him, but we don't base our lives on saying, I don't do this, I don't do that, I don't do that, I don't do that, because that's all about me doing it, isn't it? If it's me, I'm doing it, I'm doing it, I'm doing it. We forget to say, thank you God, that Jesus is my purity. Jesus is up there with God, and he is my purity. So we thank God, we live in Jesus' purity, because we thank God that Jesus is our purity. We can't earn it, and we don't do anything um, to get it ourselves. But we thank God for it, and we live thinking, actually, I want to bring glory to Jesus, so I'm not going to do the things that would upset him, that he would find you know, uh, disgraceful, but I'm going to try and live the way that Jesus would want me to live here and now. So the second one, we looked at God's people were oppressed, Jesus was oppressed. Our challenge is not to be surprised when we're oppressed. We see it in the Bible. We see it happening to Jesus. What's the point when difficulty comes, when struggles come, to say, stuff this for a game of trains, I'm off. Christianity, I got oppressed, can't be doing with it. This is boring. Somebody at work called me a name. Somebody said, oh, you're Bible basher. You know, what's the point? I'm thinking, stuff it, I'll chuck my towel in, I'll spit my dummy out. That's not what we're to do. If we face oppression of any sort, whether it's just being called names, or whether you know, we have family members that are hurt through, um, through difficulty, or friends of ours who are missionaries in other countries who we see dying for the Saviour, our response isn't to go, this is just pointless. Oh, I can't be dealing with this. Jesus faced his oppression, and he died for it. Our response should be to run to Jesus, to thank Jesus that any oppression is only temporary, and to thank God that our oppression is something that can change us and make us be more like Jesus. Jesus faced his oppressors with grace and with love. On the cross he said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. How often do we thank God for the difficulties that come our way and we pray for those people who are doing it towards us? And then last, just before we close, I'll have faith in Jesus' unflappable faithfulness. Ultimately, I won't try and be my own saviour. I won't think that I'm good enough to work my way to God. But I'll rely on everything that Jesus has done. And in turn, I'll run to my family, my Christian family, my church family for support. If I'm struggling, I'll run in there and say, look, I need some help. I need you to pray for me. I need you to look out for me. I need some help with this. I've done this, this and this, and I just need some help. Please pray for me. And as a church family, in response to that, we should say, do you know what? God loves you. God forgives you. Isn't Jesus wonderful? That's what we need to do. As a church family, when we, when we struggle and when we're suffering, we should run to each other. And in response, we should point people to Jesus. They're my challenges for you. So from looking through Ezra chapter 4, will you live in Jesus' purity? Will you not be surprised when oppression comes along? And will you trust in Jesus' unflappable faithfulness? So I hope some of that makes sense. I'll pray and then Joan's going to 
lead us in the next song. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, your word is true, that it can teach us things about you and about your son, the Lord Jesus, and your plan for, for the world. Father, I thank you that oppression that we may see is only temporary. Father, I thank you that Jesus is pure, that his blood cleanses from all sin. And Father, thank you that he was faithful even when we aren't, and that he offers that to us, and that we can take it by faith and belong to you as your people. And Father, I pray that you would challenge us and help us to become more and more like your dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.